Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. Today in the pod, we have Montana Governor Steve Bullock and the host of Crooked Media's with friends like these, Anna Marie Cox. Also, uh, don't forget to go subscribe and listen to this week's Pod Save the World. Tommy had a great conversation with Julia Yaffe from The Atlantic. She's a Russia expert, and they talked not just about the Russia hack, but, you know, what was Putin's motivation? Did he just get lucky, or is he going to try it again? Seems like he might. And she also tells the uh, the crazy story of how she was harassed after her piece about uh, Melania Trump by a bunch of online trolls. It's a really good episode. Check it out. You can also find all of our pods now on Spotify, all of Crooked Media's pods, which is great. I go to Spotify all the time. I just opened it up the other day, and there was Pod Save America, a suggested podcast. Very exciting, Dan. Their algorithm is top-notch. It is. Yeah, their Discover playlists are phenomenal. Okay, so it's Made in America week here in the Trump administration. Seems like, uh, <laughs> seems like they've got that message through. We are, we're basically waiting for the uh, CBO score for the Trump Care 2.0, 3.0. I've lost count at this point. But um, this is the bill that won't fucking die, Dan. And we thought it was dead earlier this week, but uh, it appears to be showing a little bit of life right now. Can we be clear on this point that you thought it was dead? And I, I have reverted to my naturally negative ways. I know, and now, and, I'm, and now I'm with you. I thought it was dead, man. It's like, well, I mean, look, it's, well, let's let's get into it here. First, let's talk about how it fell apart, right? So Susan Collins and Rand Paul were hard nose on this bill. Um, and that meant that one more no would kill the bill. Remember, three Republicans against this bill. It doesn't go anywhere. So then Monday night, Mike Lee and Jerry Moran, Jerry Moran's senator from Kansas, Mike Lee from Utah, uh, released simultaneous statements saying that they both opposed the bill. So that killed it for the time being. Uh, Lee's reason is because it didn't get rid of enough insurance protections. For him, the Cruz Amendment was too liberal. <laughs> Tells you where Mike Lee's coming from. And Jerry Moran, you know, unclear exactly why he was against it, but um, he was getting a lot of pressure from constituents at his office, his town halls. Uh, so, you know, he, he was... Uh, unhappy with the Medicaid parts of the bill. So that was Moran, right? So they kill the bill. After they kill it, McConnell seems like he's retreating, announces he's going to hold a vote on repeal and delay, which is the worst possible option because it keeps all of Obamacare's regulations because you can't eliminate those through the reconciliation budget process, but it just guts all the funding in Obamacare and it doesn't go into effect for two years. But this, of course, would immediately destroy the insurance markets because no insurance company would stick around in a program that's going to be gone in two years. Uh, we have a CBO score for that scheme. It, uh, it says 17 million people would lose their insurance by 2018 and 32 million would lose their insurance by 2026. Oh, and by the way, your premiums would double. So then on Tuesday, Collins, Murkowski from Alaska and Capito from West Virginia and ultimately Portman from Ohio all came out and said... They will not vote for repeal and delay. And by the way, none of them really liked the earlier version of Trump care either. So then it seems like it's all over. But then Donald Trump jumps in. And what was Donald Trump's reaction, Dan? Well, Donald, <laughs> Donald Trump, he had several reactions. First was just repeal the thing, then repeal and delay, then repeal and replace. He told Republicans to stay in through the August recess to do it. He had a a part of his usual coherent uh, tweet streams on this one. Yeah. Uh, but 
he sort of threatened Republicans and brought them back to the table of sorts, and which is alarmingly what happened over time after the first the first House version of wealth care, Trump care, Acha failed is Trump's browbeating somehow got them back to the table. And that's sort of what happened here with a lunch in the White House, with a lunch in the White House and then a a meeting soon thereafter. Yeah. And he, and at that lunch, he's uh, he sat Dean Heller right next to him. I'm sure that wasn't an accident. And uh, at one point during the lunch, he goes, uh, and this guy wants to remain a senator, doesn't he? And then Heller laughs. I have to say, Dean Heller, man, <laughs> this guy, it's like, I get the political position he's in, which is, you know, if he opposes Trump care, then um, Steve Wynn, casino billionaire from Nevada, Trump, all these other rich Republican billionaires have threatened a primary challenge. And, you know, really smart people like John Ralston in Nevada, reporter in Nevada, think like he's going to lose in 2018 if he opposes this. But he's also probably going to lose in Nevada, which is a blue state that Hillary Clinton won, if he votes for this, right? So, like, Dean Heller could be a dead man walking either way. <laughs> but you got to at least take a stand. The, the, no, Everyone who has asked Dean Heller what he believes about this bill cannot get a straight answer from the guy. He is too afraid to say what he really believes. It is just like... My view on politicians is always like this. Come out against the bill, come out for the bill, but take a fucking stand, man. Like, Because if you don't take a stand and you're squishy, you're definitely going to lose. You're definitely yeah, going to lose re-election. That, that is exactly right. And this is where political consultants and politicians are too clever by half. Where it's yes. like, we'll just duck and we'll, we will not be the person who killed Obamacare. We will not be the person who, who saved Obamacare. We'll just pretend like the voters forgot we existed. But – Voters can smell weakness in calculation, and that's exactly – Dean Heller, I think, did himself some good a few weeks ago when he came out with Sandoval and said that he was going to oppose the that first version of the bill. And when he did that, he seemed strong, and now he seems like he's ducking, and voters can sense that. And so he's taking a – he's he has a tough hand to play, and he's playing it as poorly as possible. Yeah. I mean, I've always believed this about – like, this is like – way back to John Kerry voting for the war in Iraq and then trying to vote against the $87 billion that would keep funding the war and thinking he could, and DC consultants thinking he could split the difference and no one would notice, right? And politicians have done this over time, right? And just, it never fucking works. It is a DC consultant mindset that does not translate to voters and actually assumes that voters are fucking stupid, you know? Um, it drives me nuts. So anyway, so Trump's got this lunch with Heller and all the rest of them. Um, he also, by the way, for one of his tweets, uh, the Republicans never discuss how good their health care bill is. Keep in mind, Donald Trump called their bill mean. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it will get even better at lunchtime. He's talking about the lunch meeting. And then he writes, the Dems scream death as O'Care dies, which very Shakespearean from, uh, from Donnie Trump. <laughs> what? This guy... We found out that this guy knows so little about healthcare, healthcare legislation, which we always believe. But in the last couple of days, we had some evidence of this. Um, I don't know if you saw there was one Daily Beast story that said that during the campaign, he would often confuse Medicaid and Medicare. Yes. Yes. <laughs> he didn't know which program was which. And then, and we'll talk about this when we get to Russia stuff, but the New York Times interview that he, that Donald Trump gave to Maggie Haberman and Peter Baker... I forget who else was there. Mike Schmidt? Michael Michael Schmidt, yeah. Yeah. Is 
one of the most terrifying documents you'll read and a series of terrifying documents from the Trump campaign, from the Trump presidency. Here's what he said about health care to the New York Times, quote, but what it does, Maggie, it means it gets tougher and tougher. As they get something, it gets tougher because politically you can't give it away. So pre-existing conditions are a tough deal because you are basically saying from the moment the insurance, you're 21 years old, you start working and you're paying $12 a year for insurance. And by the time you're 70, you get a nice plan. Here's something where you walk up and say, I want my insurance. It's a very tough deal, but it is something that we're doing a good job of. Dan, can you uh, dissect that for us? <laughs> I think it's a tough deal. I think healthcare <laughs> is a tough deal. The thing that I find mind-boggling about Trump is not that he doesn't understand healthcare, although he certainly should. It's the he hasn't even bothered to learn how to fake it. Like if he would just memorize like five terms, like growth in healthcare costs, bending the cost curve. There's like just you can healthcare is very very. It's a one of the most complicated domestic policy issues that you can look at. And to truly, truly deeply understand it takes time and energy and brain power. Trump, none of which Trump will allot to this, but at least learn how to fake it. Like he, it is as if he has never read a single memo or paid attention in a single meeting about this. Just through osmosis alone, you would think he would be able to say a few words that would pretend like he doesn't say this. He just he can only talk about the politics of it. He cannot talk anything about the policy. And I think it's worth noting, you pointed out the Medicaid, Medicare confusion, which is there is this theory we've talked about before, where when Trump tweeted that he would not cut Medicaid during the campaign, he actually meant Medicare. He just didn't know the difference. Yeah. Um, I do wish the New York Times reporters who gave a very thorough interview had asked him about reversing his position on cutting Medicaid. Because that's one of these things that is, it is a read my lips type pledge that he has dramatically backed away from and no one seems to try to hold him accountable for it. It is very unfortunate. Look, and I get, I think Maggie and company have a, a pretty brilliant strategy when they sit down and interview Trump, which is they give him enough rope to hang himself and just sort of like lead him on knowing that he'll say something crazy, you know. But you can try to cover a bunch of different topics and probe in different places um, that are of huge importance to the American people. And look, maybe them trying to get him to say something crazy on Russia and in the investigation and all that is on, on top of their mind. Fine. But um, I really wish they had done that as well. So Trump has no idea what he's talking about. Like he, he thinks he thinks that health insurance is life insurance. Right. Like that, that that's what that description was. And he probably thinks health insurance is life insurance because he sees life insurance ads uh, in between Fox and Friends segments because they run all over cable. I mean, like that's that's actually what I believe about this. I don't a hundred percent. He's just um, OK. So forget about Trump. Trump, basically his role in this whole thing is when he doesn't get a win or he thinks he's not getting one on health care, he screams, yells about things that no one can understand. And Republican senators, for some odd reason, uh, listen and say, OK, he's mad at us and he might finance primary opponents against us. So let's try to get in a room and figure something out. So that's basically what happened. So last night they all met or at least some of them met. Uh, importantly, uh, Susan Collins, Rand Paul were not in that meeting. 
uh, that they had last night, which is and and it was and a lot of staff wasn't in the meeting, so it wasn't like serious negotiation. But a bunch of Republicans met in the Senate last night. They left the meeting saying that they were a little more optimistic that maybe they had bridged some of their differences on this bill, but that there was no real progress. They hadn't thrown around real dollar amounts. Pat Toomey said, hard to say if we're closer. I'm fine voting next week. Privately, they said they doubted they could still get to 50. But they're trying, which is the important thing um, for all of us. And there are rumors that McConnell will spend or could spend up to $200 billion extra to shore up Medicaid uh, and and, uh, appease some of these senators with Medicaid expansion states, which is very scary. Um, Even though throwing $200 billion at a problem where you've uh, just cut $1.2 trillion from Medicaid and from the subsidies, adding $200 billion back in is really not going to do much, right? Last night, I was at, we're in in the middle of a fight for family vacation right now, and I was at dinner with my family, and I like glanced at my phone and I saw your text about your doomsaying text about the two hundred billion dollars. And so I pulled out my phone and obviously just started intensely reading the Twitter feeds of like Topher Spiro, Andy Slavitt to try to get the facts, yeah. and became was basically ended up being so rude at the table that uh, Hallie elbowed me in the side to basically tell me to put my phone away, and I was like, <laughs> "Healthcare's in trouble." And so the. <laughs> <laughs> my mood I'm the same way man my mood like noticeably changes when I think the bill is alive versus when I think it's dead. <laughs> like yeah. I was having trouble preparing for the pod last night because all I was doing is like reading Dylan Scott from Vox's feed and reading to- reading Topher and Andy and Julie Rovner and all these people who cover yeah. healthcare. <sighs> I think the I think this is prob- the fact here is this will never be truly dead until Democrats take back the House. No, the I, saw, I saw your tweet on that, and it is very correct. That tweet was said in response to your uh, "It's dead, all dead" in all caps uh, tweets about it. And I, was, I did. Was I did a follow up very tweet. nervous. I did a follow up tweet that said, "Let's keep working. Let's keep yeah, fighting." I saw that. I saw that. I appreciated that. But look, so I don't know if this two hundred billion is going to work. Like I, I talked to Andy Slavitt as I. Do, he must be annoyed by all the times that I DM him. Um, <laughs> But he thinks, you know, he he thought that McConnell would spend this money the last round, right? Um, he was surprised that he didn't. One of the reasons McConnell didn't is because a lot of these senators who are in non-Medicaid expansion states, they don't want the Medicaid expansion states to get a bunch of money that they don't. And, you know, he also said, you know, Collins is not going to be a yes. It doesn't seem like they can get Paul to yes. So they are still, you know, they, they still don't have the votes, but basically all they need is one like Murkowski or Capito or Portman, uh, or they need all three of them, right? Like if one of them says no, we're fine. Um, but if, you know, and the other thing we should say too is, of course, uh, John McCain, uh, very sadly diagnosed with uh, brain cancer, we found out last night, and which was just really sad to see. Like, yeah, oof. very sad. So, but he's also not in the Senate right now. And he, he did tweet this morning, which is a really great tweet from John McCain. He said, you know, to my all my Senate sparring partners, like I'll be back soon. <laughs> don't get too excited. Um, but as as long as he's not there, they also don't they don't have the the votes to proceed because they are down one too. And we of course don't know what McCain will do when he comes back because he was sort of against the he he basically released a statement uh, as he was recovering from surgery saying we need to get back to a bipartisan process. You know, so we don't know what will happen. CBO score will come out today. And, you know, I don't I think that will still show like 18 to 20 million probably. 
will lose their insurance. So I can't imagine the CBO score would help them that much. The CBO will not include the Cruise Amendment, uh, which is crazy because the Cruise Amendment would destroy the insurance markets. So you think you'd think they'd uh, think we'd want to know that before Republicans voted on the bill. Do you understand? I've been trying to get to the bottom of why they're not including the Cruise Amendment. Oh, uh, yeah, because they don't want us because it would the, what the Cruise Amendment would show were that like premiums would spike just unbelievably <clears throat> um, that more people would lose their coverage. It's also I think, well, there's two things. One, it's really hard to score the Cruise Amendment because a lot of healthcare experts on both sides of the aisle think it's completely unworkable. Like you just can't do it. So they're having a hard time figuring out just what kind of impact it would have. But they also know that Oh, also, the extra money that McConnell has added to the bill so far would likely go to helping clean up the mess that the Cruise Amendment causes. So the Cruise Amendment like will spike premiums for just about everyone because it will in, uh, cause a death spiral in the insurance markets. And to fix that, it would give a little extra money to people to afford the higher priced insurance. But do you know why the crew, why the CBO is the CBO not scoring it because it's too hard to score, or because McConnell didn't give them the Cruise Amendment to score? Well, they he, get. he finally gave it to them, but they had this thing where they decided to delay giving it to them because they wanted to hold it off as long as possible. They are shady motherfuckers. <laughs> yes, they are shady motherfuckers. That is true. <laughs> so. Why, why do you think this is – first, we'll talk about the problems Democrats have and Republicans have. But why, why do you think this has been so hard for Republicans to get to an agreement on this? There are a couple of reasons for it. One, we've talked about this before, but they've spent – they had eight years to prepare for this moment and never came up with anything other than straight repeal. There was never – you know, I mean, we remember this in the White House. Paul Ryan would come out and say the – you know – the Republican health care plan will come out in three months, and then three months would come, and it would not come out. And then the next year, he'd say the same thing. And they they were very comfortable in, the oppos- in opposition, but they didn't want to put anything forward because health care policy is very politically tough because it involves trade-offs. And so that's part one. Part two is – you know this. The you know this point has been made before, but once people, it's very hard. It's very hard to take things away from people. And what they really want to do is have is not the Republicans actually believe the government should not provide health care to people. Yep, that's but exactly. they cannot say that. And this is, I think, one of the regardless of what happens with repeal and replace, repeal and delay, Trump care, wealth care, whatever, is one of the on the large, you know, sort of on the longer timeline accomplishments of the or elements of the Obama legacy is shifting the window on the conversation in this country is that healthcare is a right because Republicans and this is why they're totally confused and fucked up here is they don't believe people should have health care. They are afraid to say that. So they are operating from within the Democratic Obama framework of people should have health care, but then they're putting in place policies that take health care away. And so the whole thing is a scam you know, wrapped in a lie, wrapped in bullshit or whatever you want to call it. And that makes it incredibly hard to do because they can't talk about what they actually want to do. Yeah. And to to the credit of some of these Republican senators who have been wavering on this uh, in a real way, as they've learned more details about healthcare and how it works and what it's like to actually try to legislate a bill, they've realized that even though they've had all these criticisms of Obamacare, the only way to fix what's wrong with Obamacare is to spend more money or to further regulate insurance companies, both 
or which are things that Republicans don't want to do because they're philosophically or their party is philosophically opposed to that. You know, they you either up subsidies for people, you increase subsidies, you add more people to Medicaid, you tell insurance companies that they have to, you know, not charge people for pre-existing conditions, whatever it is, the government has to step in in some way. But a lot of Republicans believe the government should not step in. Well, that's fine if you want to have that belief. If you believe the government should not step in to help people afford health insurance and it should be a completely private market, that's a fine belief to have. But a lot of these Republicans know it's an argument they'll never win with the American people. The Republicans have no coherent ideological agenda, right? Democrats, for whatever else you want to say about Obamacare, about how the bill came together, the flaws it may have, you know, Obamacare versus, you know, single payer, Medicare for all, whatever else is the Democrats had a have had a long held view that health care is a right. Everyone should have access to quality, affordable health care. And then we when we had the legislative opportunity to do so, we put in place what the best bill, the political system, what we believe was the best bill the political system will allow at the moment. Republicans don't have that sort of goal. They have it on taxes, which is cut taxes for everyone, particularly rich people. But on health care, they have no goal. They've, I mean, it's not even just the eight years against Obamacare. It's, I mean, we're at 40, 50, 60 years of Republicans fighting against every attempt to provide health care to people. And so the it's they're, they're not, there's not a thing that unites them here, right? Other than the the fact that it's Barack Obama's healthcare bill, that's the one thing that unites them. They don't care about anything else other than this right. is an element of the Obama leg- legacy that we can take down. And they say that you know that they've made this promise that they would repeal Obamacare for like the last eight years, and Trump and some of these other people, Republicans, keep telling them. If you don't keep that promise, voters will punish you, right? Which I, I think even if I was just giving political advice to Republicans, I'd say like, yeah, I realize you made that promise, but your voters don't want to lose their health insurance either, <laughs> right? Like yeah. maybe they think, yeah, you made a promise, but if you were a Republican, if I was a Republican in, in a state with a huge Medicaid expansion, I'd go back and say, yeah, I know I've been saying repeal Obamacare for the last seven years, but I also know that there's some things right with the law and it's covered a lot of people. And so I'd rather go try to improve the law with the other party than to take it away from people. And look, that's what governors like John Kasich said that, governors like Brian Sandoval in Nevada said that. So like there are Republicans who done that. It's just they don't they don't exist or enough of them don't exist in the Senate right now. And you know, you're not just proffering some theory about what Republican voters think. There are polls that show it. Plenty. If people were strongly for Republicans were strongly for repeal of Obamacare years ago before they actually got health care from it, their position has changed dramatically. The I have never seen on on like a legitimate policy initiative anything as unpopular as Trump Care currently is. We are in the teens in some of these polls. In Obamacare is twice as popular as the Republican alternative. And so like every like the the public the voters are waving their hands saying do not do this and they are proceeding ahead for reasons that are quasi mysterious to me but I think they probably boil down to fear of the Breitbarts of the world fear of Sean Hannity and the fact that basically Republican politicians and Republican staff get all of their information from Fox News. And if you watch Fox News, you get a very different view of how the world looks. And not a particularly good view, to be honest. No. Um, the bank bailout, more popular than uh, than the Trump care. <laughs> how's, that, how's that one for you? Uh, yeah. I saw it was 
poll the poll said that the other day. So what if um it's not you know how did Democrats win this fight because we did not win it yet? But what have Democrats been doing right so far? Do you think? And are there Unified. any lessons for the future? Yeah, I think unity is the is the big thing, and you know there are real divides in our party that's that are ideological, but sort of boil down to the Bernie wing versus the Hillary wing or the rest of it. And what has been interesting is that Bernie Sanders, who obviously has been believes huge advocate of single payer, very critical of Hillary Clinton for not being for single payer, but you know he and his allies in this have been. Just, you know, right in line with Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi and everyone else fighting hard against Trump care and in not using it as opportunity to just, you know, if the, if you were using this to run down, if if liberals who believed in single payer, as many of us do, were using this as an opportunity to also run down Obamacare, I think it would undermine the ability to preserve it. And so the unity here. You know, despite a party that feels fractured at times, is encouraging, and I think it's also a roadmap for how we're going to defeat things going forward, at least over the next eighteen months until we get to the the midterms. I agree with that. Um, breaking news here, just in from the CBO: twenty-two million will still lose coverage under the latest bill. They did not improve the score at all. <laughs> Unfucking believable. Okay, well, that's that. Uh, 15 million more uninsured by 2018, 18 million more by 2020, 22 million by 2026. Great job, Mitch McConnell. Great job. Um, Can we talk for a little bit about the legend of Mitch McConnell? Yes. Yes, we can. <laughs> there are, you know, we keep reading all these stories that are like, this is a blow to his reputation as a master legislator. Mm-hmm. And Mitch McConnell, to his credit, is much more competent than most of the other numbskulls in the Republican Party. And, you know, we did some deals with Mitch McConnell um, over time to, you know, prevent taxes from going up, you know, so those sorts of things. And he is someone that if he cut a deal with him, he is capable of executing on it, unlike John Boehner, who just didn't have the strength to muscle his caucus somewhere. But Let's not pretend he is like Ted Kennedy because right. I don't remember. There's not like there, there's not going to be some monument to Mitch McConnell for all the things uh, that he passed to make the world better. I mean, he's basically been a guy who has no ideological beliefs other than the accumulation of power. And so if the the he may succeed here. So I'm not dancing on his grave prematurely. I'll be very clear to the karma gods. But yeah. the the way the sort of the legendary status that has been bequeathed on him by the Capitol Hill reporters is pretty nauseating for someone who's nothing more than a political hack. Yeah, I mean, what I'll remember for Mitch McConnell is that he successfully stole a Supreme Court seat um, that Barack Obama should have filled, and he withheld bipartisan support from Barack Obama for issuing a statement that Russia was interfering in our elections, even though every intelligence agency in the government that looked at it said that they were. So that's what Mitch McConnell has done. And let's not forget, he said his top priority was defeating Barack Obama. Well, guess what, buddy? Yeah, he didn't do that. He did not you do did that. You did not succeed. Yes. He, did st- he did stymie uh, quite a bit of his agenda, uh, yeah. but he did not defeat him. Yes. So back to the, the Democrats for a second, what they've been doing right. Totally agree on the unity front, too. I also think encouraging activism and sort of letting activists and organizers and, and people sort of take the lead on this fight and not just politicians has made a really big difference. 
and look, as soon as when we thought the bill was dead, you know, a lot of people were saying resistance worked, activism worked, and there's some people throwing cold water on that because like Mike Lee is too conservative, whatever. Jeff Stein from Vox has been doing a great job on all this healthcare reporting. He actually talked to some of these Republican senators about whether sort of the resistance and people showing up at their office and protests made a difference. And Rob Portman said, those voices are heard. And yes, I think it's made a difference. Tim Scott, senator from South Carolina, said, of course, it's made a difference. And of course, like Jerry Moran from Kansas, who no one would have expected to oppose this bill. You know, he had had he was the only senator to hold a town hall over the last couple of weeks. And so it's no coincidence that um, a lot of people showed up at that town hall and told him not to vote for it. And he didn't. So I think that that activism really matters here. I also think, Dan, that this is an issue that we didn't have to just talk about Trump all the time and say annoying, you know, and talk about Trump's offensive comments or crazy things he said. It was a real issue that we got to talk about, you know, and it was like we had stories about real people's lives and we talked about things that would matter to people's lives. And I think Democrats probably need to do that going forward. You know, we can't make everything about Trump. And this healthcare debate wasn't. He was he was a side player in this whole thing. And we've made it about the issue itself. Like you said, we still we still might not get there. They still might pass something anyway. But the fact that it's been this hard for them is is a direct result of the activism that Democrats have shown. Yeah, I think that's interesting because, you know, part of the I was at a you know a couple of months ago at like a I was part of a strategic discussion about how to think about healthcare and Trump with some other Democratic activists. And one of the arguments was how do we get from some folks who were working with the Hill directly was how do we get Trump more part of the healthcare story because Trump is so unpopular that it would sort of slow things down. But it's turned out to be the actual opposite, is yeah. that by not making it about Trump and by Trump actually being s- s- too undisciplined and too ignorant to actually talk about healthcare in any way, shape, or form and having it really be just about the people who would lose coverage, the people whose premiums would go up or the people with pre-existing conditions is you know has been much greater success because it, get, it has managed to cut through – the Trump, the our national attention deficit disorder when it runs to Trump, when yep. it comes to Trump, and to actually focus on one thing in the impacts of it on people for six months now. And that's pretty, you know, I think that's also something what we'll have to look at going forward in some of these other policy fights is what is, what is the actual impact and not get pulled into the Trumpification of every, of every topic in America. Yes. And before we uh, get pulled ourselves into the Trumpification of everything by talking about his New York Times interview, Ben Wickler from Move On emailed us before the pod. We always take our marching orders from Ben. He told us to tell people, sign up if you want to host or join a demonstration. They're happening all across the country on July 29th. Sign up at ourlivesontheline.org. Um, and there's just there's plenty of opportunities for protests, for rallies. Visit your off, visit your senators' offices. Um, this thing is still very much alive. Right now, the vote is scheduled on Tuesday, uh, so that's a very big day. You know, I like you said, Dan, it's not completely dead until Democrats win. But if the vote fails on Tuesday, you know, again, the percentages that it might pass decrease even more. So um, so keep fighting on that. But uh, let's let's talk about that New York Times interview. Um, oh, man, it, I mean, God, I, I just I read it last night and I was like, I just I cannot believe I cannot believe we are in this mess. <laughs> so the headline was uh, and this is a Trump quote, direct Trump quote from the interview. Sessions should have never recused himself. And if he was going to recuse himself, he should have told me before he took the job and I would have picked somebody else. Seems <laughs> seems obstructiony to me. 
Yeah, I think the best part about it is, and he's pretty clear, is he's mad at Sessions because if Sessions had still be in charge, he could have cover up Trump's misdeeds for him. But now Trump is annoyed because he had to personally obstruct justice, exposing himself to legal liability to try to stop the Russia investigation. And so in that sense, Trump's or Sessions screwed him. If I had known the campaign stooge I installed as attorney general would refuse to help me obstruct justice, <laughs> I would have appointed a different stooge. <laughs> oh, That's man. basically what he was saying. Um, he also attacked his deputy attorney general, Rod Rosenstein, because Trump thought he mis- Trump mistakenly thought that Rosenstein was from Baltimore, and he said, "quote That city doesn't have a lot of Republicans." And then he accused Rosenstein of having conflicts of interest. He wouldn't rule out firing Bob Mueller, the special invest- special prosecutor, and said that investigators would cross a red line if they looked into Trump family finances uh, unrelated to Russia. Which, spoiler alert, found out this morning they are. <laughs> One of my favorite things that came of this is friend of the pod and long friend of longtime friend of ours, David Plouffe, yeah. reemerged on Twitter. He's oh, I didn't see post this. election. Yeah, post election, he has spent a lot less time on Twitter. I think really purifying a lot of his life and <laughs> just out of nowhere tweets. There are 144,043 Republicans in Baltimore County. But he's not even from there. So <laughs> Plouffe, who is a numbers guy by nature, went deep into the voter file to get the number of registered Republicans in Baltimore County just to prove Trump wrong. Oh. And Rosenstein's not even from Trump, from Baltimore. He also accused, uh, you know, for good measure, accused Jim Comey of perjury and blackmail. He says that uh, he said that Comey only briefed Trump on the P-tape dossier because he wanted to keep his job. Now, there's one really funny thing that Trump said in this interview that made me laugh pretty hard. Uh, they asked about, you know, getting the the meeting where Don Jr., you know, said went because he wanted dirt on Hillary Clinton. And Trump's like, well, why would I need dirt on Hillary Clinton? And he said, quote, there wasn't much I could say about Hillary Clinton that was worse than what I was already saying. Unless somebody said that she shot somebody in the back, there wasn't much I could add to my repertoire. <laughs> This is like a genuinely funny thing for Trump to say. (laughs) And insane. Completely insane. I think it's worth talking about how it appears this interview happened, which is Hope Hicks, who who sits outside of Trump's office, was his press secretary in the campaign, has a communications title, but does Mm -hmm. not seem to be part of the – she seems to report to Trump directly and to no one else organized this interview and was the only staffer in the room for it. And if you believe some of the reports, most of the senior White House staff, including Sean Spicer, Reince Priebus, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, found out about this interview afterwards. That was nuts. Yeah. I figured you so, would, I figured you that but you and and Tommy and our uh, our old comms people would have particular horror at that at that little detail. I mean, could you just imagine if I was just like walking by Obama's office and the door was closed? I was like, hey, what's he doing? He's like doing an hour long sit down with three top reporters in the New York Times, including the one who has been on the Comey obstruction of justice beat. <laughs> it's like, yeah. which is to show how naive they are, which is, I'm sure, what, however this happened, I'm sure Hope called Maggie and said, we want to do it. Trump wants to talk to you. And she's like, hey, can I bring Mike Schmidt, the expert on all things Comey, FBI, DOJ? And they're like, sure, why not? More the merrier. I mean, it is bonkers. 
And it's just, I mean, it goes without saying, anyone, everyone should go read this whole interview. It's, it's very long, but, um, and it's very, very confusing. But, like, the guy does not have the mental capacity to serve as president of the United States. I, I like, look, I know we've gone through this. Lovett always talks about, like, he's, he's in some state of decline or something. I don't know. We're not doctors. No one can diagnose this man. No one gets it. But, like, whether it's because he has some sort of condition or whether this was always the case, I don't care what it is. The result is the man cannot speak in full sentences that anyone can understand, right? Like, I don't, I would like to talk to Maggie about, like, how did you even understand what he was saying? Like, the, the, the sentences don't make sense. The context doesn't make sense. He, like, refers to things that in, in vague terms that no one knows what he's talking about. Like, it was really disturbing to read the transcript. The amount of times that the transcript says garbled, yeah. <laughs> which is like almost every answer. It's like sentence, sentence, garbled, garbled, sentence. And that's different. Like in interview transcripts, there are two things. Crosstalk is what they people put in the transcript when, as we often do, two people talk over each other and you don't know what it says. But garbled means that they listened to what Trump said on tape and could not understand it. And so they wrote garbled and I'd like to see what is in there. I'd like to read the, I've only read the excerpts. I haven't seen a full transcript, but there's, but there's one other thing. I've, the excerpts I read were like, took me like 15 minutes. Um, (laughs) The thing that is interesting and there's nothing inappropriate about this, but at one point in the transcript, Peter Baker of the time says, since we're on the record here, which is a, which means in my view that it they went there at one point they several points they were off the record right because since we're on the record is what reporters normally say just to make sure if you've been going on and off to make sure that the subject knows we're back on the record so there's not a dispute about what they say later and it's totally appropriate to go off the record obama has done it we all do it but i'd be very just curious like if the the insane things he said knowing they were being transcribed and put in the nation's paper of record is one thing like what how crazy are the things he wouldn't say publicly i mean who knows I, it, right like i did the collusion i don't know yeah. um <laughs> yeah i did it i did the collusion but just keep that between us <laughs> it's i mean it is the entire interview is a letter to america to be very fucking afraid of yeah. the person in charge yeah, it's a fucking red flashing light to America. Um, yeah. So he did at one point in the interview he talked about the um, the secret Putin meeting that happened at the G20, which is basically so this is this is how this went down. There was a dinner at the G20 for the leaders and their wives or partners, and so everyone's sitting seating at a table. And at those dinners, they usually separate the couples. So Trump sitting next to Prime Minister Abe from Japan. And I think the wife of the president of Argentina might be. Anyway, so he's not with Melania. And Melania is sitting next to Putin down the other end of the table. So Trump gets up at one point, goes down there, does not bring a, a, a translator. And so it is just Trump, Melania, Putin, and a Russian translator. And they proceed to have a conversation that ranges anywhere between 30 minutes to an hour, depending on various reports. And um, no one knows what the hell they said, what they, what they talked about, because we didn't even have an English translator. So why is this, why is this a problem, Dan? <laughs> well, one is 
Putin is a pretty savvy player on the world stage, mm. and Trump is always one step from drooling on himself. So <laughs> it's like there's no – I don't know what how what lunch money Trump had when he started the meeting, but it's in Putin's pocket now. So <laughs> one, what, one step from drooling on himself is the winner yeah. of the uh, title for the episode. We've had a few, oh, had a few, few. contenders in my mind as we've been talking, but that's going to be yeah. it. <laughs> I mean, it like it. you need – you would even in a good situation with a ally, you would want in a competent, prepared president. You want a U.S. note taker there to be able to have a record of the events, or everyone else could. So, if there's a dispute, if Putin were to characterize it one way, you would have a you would have a first person witness to characterize it another way for the U.S. president. And you also want your own translator because your own translator knows whether the translator is saying the right thing, is accurately translating your words to the foreign leader. And so basically, the like we Trump has no idea what was happening and was just potentially giving away the store without anyone in the US government knowing what he's agreeing to with a leader of the foreign country. I would also say it is pretty a lot of thought from the host country goes into the seat, the seating chart at these tables, and I think it's pretty devious that two things happen. One, they set Trump next to someone who does not speak English. I think so because probably no one else wanted to sit next to Trump, and <laughs> Abe's wife therefore could would not be forced to speak to him because they could not communicate. And then it's pretty amazing that they put Melania next to Putin. Yeah, I know that was that just like Merkel having fun. I don't know. I, I it was that was someone deep in the German protocol department, <laughs> fucking with you, fucking with Trump, having a good time. So, and in terms of the investigation, it also looks like Jared Kushner will testify before the Senate Intelligence Committee in a closed hearing next week on Tuesday. Whether Junior will testify, I saw conflicting reports that they're not sure he will yet, though he's been invited to. And uh, so, why why does this matter? Well. On the Trump Jr. and Manafort, they have been invited, and the and the Judiciary Committee has said if they say no, they will subpoena them and possibly have U.S. Marshals escort them. So, so to Chuck Grassley's credit, he seems pretty serious about this. Yeah, um, but I mean, this is these people lie about what they had for breakfast, all of them, mm. and so they are now going to, I believe, testify under oath. I will be very interested. I think it. I think Trump Jr. and Manafort will have to testify under oath because it'll be an open session. I'll be very interested to see in the negotiations between Jared Kushner's ever-evolving legal team whether he will be put under oath before he speaks to the Senate Intel Committee. Um, But every every time they open their mouth, they put themselves at greater risk of obstruction of justice, perjury, and a myriad set of other crimes that involve conspiracies to work with our adversaries to influence elections. Bad stuff. Okay, we'll check that out next week. When we come back, we will be talking to the governor of Montana, Steve Bullock. This is Pod Save America. Stick around. There's more great show coming your way. Beyonce, Katanji Brown Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, the Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life. Maybe that's yourself. 
to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go, and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at a dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. On the pod today, we are very lucky to have the governor in the state of Montana, Steve Bullock. Governor, how are you today? You know, I'm doing great today, John. How are you doing? And Dan? Not too bad. We're doing great. Not too bad. Um, So you recently created a political action committee, Big Sky Values Pack. Uh, That's the kind of thing people do when they're thinking about running for president. So do you want to be the first presidential candidate to announce your campaign on a podcast? (laughs) (laughs) No, you know, I recently created that. You know, I've been both. We've done some great things in Montana, and I think there's some of it's a message that you can certainly share around the country. Mm -hmm. The way... It works here. Once I was done uh, running for governor, um, have to close out all the campaign accounts and things like that. So this affords me the opportunity to be part of this conversation of sort of what we've done in Montana, how we've done it, and the lessons, not just for the Democratic Party, but for the entire country that hopefully folks can learn because we've listened to people, we've worked across um, the aisle, but we've been able to move some real progressive things forward. So, yeah, let's talk about that. You you won Montana by four points on the same night that Trump won it by 20. Uh, we also just saw Democrat Rob Quist lose, uh, lose the state to uh, a guy who body slammed a reporter. So what's your secret? What are some of the lessons that you can share that, you know, why, why you won by four points on a, on a night where uh, Trump won by 20? Yeah, there were more ads run in the governor's race here in Montana than any other governor's race in the country, and we ended up doing pretty well when Trump won by 20. I mean, I I think a few different things, one of which is showing up, meaning getting out to places that maybe Democrats don't always go. Another that I think that we did well was that at times it's an assumption that either different places in the country, different places in the state, that we want different things. If we begin with sort of this base concept that 
everybody has the same hopes and values, right? You want a safe community, you want good schools, clean air, clean water, a good job, fundamental belief you can do better for your kids and grandkids. If you begin with those values, I think some of our differences disappear a little bit. And also, it's, I believe one of the things that really helped out was the way that we had run government. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I first came in, my first day of the state, and my kids are young, I said, let's all act like our kids are watching, learn from us, be respectful, because they are. We did that, and typically, I mean, and it doesn't work everywhere, but my focus has been on what I call kind of both the great equalizers and the public good versus narrow self-interest in Montana. One thing, it doesn't matter how big your wallet or checkbook is, it's our public lands. Another area is public education. Another is public participation in our democracy and making folks feel like their vote is their voice. If you focus on those versus narrow sort of self-interest, be that some of the tax issues and things like that, I think that it resonated. You know, the Democratic Party has moved left in recent years. Are you concerned it's moving too far left to reach the sort of voters that you've had success with in places like Montana? You know, in a state like ours, and it was interesting, if I hearken back to my last campaign, one of the first things that I did when I took office is formed an Equal Pay for Equal Work Commission. Because on the one hand, you know, it's still, it's unacceptable 50 years post-Kennedy that we still have this sort of pay discrepancy. And when I was running, folks were saying, oh, well, that's a national issue. It may be too far to the left. Well, my TV ad was with my 14-year-old daughter talking about what a difference it makes for them. So from the standpoint of making sure we have equal pay, making sure we have quality education, making sure that we're moving all Montanans or all Americans forward, my concern isn't that we go too far left. It's what we're talking about that actually resonates to all folks. I mean, People in Montana or people in the country need to know that the Democratic Party is fighting for them. And I don't know that they always do. Why do you think that is? What do you, what do you think that Democrats talk about that doesn't resonate with people in Montana and in other parts of the country? Well, the, one is talking about it, and two of which is actually showing up. Mm-hmm. Um, meaning that, and I'll never forget, I was running for Attorney General uh, in 2008, and President Obama, after our primary, because Montana was one of the last primary states, so at the time, uh, Senator Clinton and Senator Obama were off and out in Montana, which you don't always see. But I'll never forget being at the 4th of July parade in Butte, Butte, America. And there's the president and his family. Remember that. Yeah, and, and the idea that, first of all, I mean, we as Democrats need to be in places and say, you know what, first we can't assume that the values are that different from Manhattan, Montana, which is 1,500 people outside of Bozeman to Manhattan, Kansas, or any other Manhattan. And second, which we have to go there and say, you know, we will fight for your values to make sure that you can get, climb up the economic ladder and that your kids and grandkids will be doing better. If we're not even showing up at those sort of places... We're not offering any sort of notion that why should they support us? It's just some you know guy or woman from a coast or elsewhere. Governor, I wanted to get your reaction to what's going on in Washington right now with the Republicans' efforts to repeal the Affordable Care Act. You know your your thoughts about what they're trying to do and where Democrats should go from here. From my perspective, so Montana, and again, my legislature is almost two thirds Republican. 
we were one of the last states other than Louisiana to pass uh, Medicaid expansion. We did it in a way that worked for our state. Right now, I can look at 79,000 more Montanans covered. My uninsurance rate went from 20% uninsured in uh, 2013 to 7% today. I'm a state that has 147,000 square miles and a million people. You know, when I was out at the governor's meeting recently, figured out 121 Rhode Islands could fit into Montana. And to have a vibrant rural area, you have to have health care. If you lose your hospital, you've lost um, that community. So what they're talking about, not only my 79,000 Montanans covered by Medicaid, I mean, when we're talking about 22 million Americans losing health coverage as a result if you did their proposed repeal and replace, 32 million if you just repealed, this is no way to go forward. That's one of the reasons. Um, I mean, I joined with five Democrat governors, five Republican governors, an independent, and we put out a statement a couple days ago that said, let's actually work on stabilizing the market and adding certainty. But what the Republicans are doing in Washington, D.C. might make a good statement like they may be able to run around and say, oh, look at what we did to Affordable Care Act. On the ground, this is where it matters, and at the states, it's the people that are impacted. So what I'm hoping is they'll actually start listening to folks. And, boy, if, if we can find five Democratic and five Republican governors to come together with some commonality, you'd think if they don't want to talk to us, at least they'd try talking to one another. Um, a lot of Democrats, as, as we look towards 2018, 2020, what to say about health care, what to run on when it comes to health care uh, is a big topic of conversation. What do you think about, I mean, there's some Democrats who are advocating single payer. Uh, there are others who are saying, you know, people should have the option of buying into Medicare or the option. Uh, people in Nevada, the legislature tried it, giving people the option to buy into Medicaid. Would any of those interest you, any of those plans? Well, I think it's a part of the discussion we should have, right? We're the only industrialized country in the nation that isn't providing health care. But by the same token, let's talk in the realities that we're living in when we're also biting tooth and nail just to try to make sure. I mean, Montana would lose $5 billion between 2020 and 2026 as a result of the House and Senate plan. We need to figure out ways to make health care affordable and accessible and available to all. How Kind of the, I recognize the devil's in the details. Right. And probably a little early to say this is the way you fully get there, but how you don't get there is when you've actually made some significant steps forward. There still has to be work done to fix uh, the markets under the Affordable Care Act, but uh, how you don't get there is like destroying it all right now without any sort of thoughtful replacements. Aside from uh, Democrats not showing up in in places, which you know certainly they need to speak to people in every part of the country, um, what do you think about the message itself? What's the story Democrats should be telling uh, specifically about the economy and you know their positive agenda for the future when they go to some of these places? I mean, I think that Democrats need to be providing the message and telling people that I will fight for you. I recognize that. At the end of the day, um, your financial stability and security and the thought that you have a decent job and can actually climb up the ladder is, other than making sure your kids are healthy and your community safe, the most important thing that you can do or most important to you as an individual and that I will fight for that. So that's as we talk about college affordability. 
But we also should be talking about other pipelines to get people good jobs. I mean, we've done a lot with apprenticeship and work-based learning here. We need to be able to say that we are actually going to represent and reflect your needs. Public education. I mean, this is one of the great equalizers that allows, I mean, allowed me to get to where I am. We need to be saying that we are going to be investing in your children and give them hope on that. I think that there are public money. I mean, certainly as a Democrat and as Governor of Montana, I'm pleased with the fact that I've been careful with taxpayer dollars. And I think that we need to do that and make people say that we will be investing in you and your communities. All right. Well, Governor, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you calling in. And uh, hopefully we can talk to you again soon. Sounds great. You guys have a great day. Thank you so much for having me. You too. Take care, Governor. Thanks, Governor. Bye. Hey, don't go anywhere. This is Pod Save America, and there's more on the way. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go, and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Beyonce, Katanji Brown-Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, the Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life. Maybe that's yourself to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. On the pod, we have the host of Crooked Media's with friends like these, Anna Marie Cox. Welcome. Hello, gentlemen. How are you? Uh... Quite well in Trump-adjusted terms, which is that <laughs> is that the leading T-shirt for uh, the poll of T-shirts? Last I checked, it was um, I'm fine in Trump-adjusted terms and Jesus loved the poor assholes. 
um, but, uh, not poor assholes, although he loved them too. That's the thing about <laughs> Jesus. Like he loved everybody and the assholes, but the assholes I believe is a directive rather than a descriptive in that particular t-shirt idea. I do think in Trump adjusted terms is the clearer message of the two, but I gather that some people don't want to even have Trump anywhere on their person. It could be so. confusing. People might not, yeah. you, you might end up like being seen as a Trump supporter. So I understand, I understand the, the risks. Particularly in California, yeah. you get like a tomato thrown at you walking on the street accidentally. Yeah. No, no. I mean, I think in, in some ways, like this is a really tricky shirt. <laughs> like all of the options, all of the options are a little problematic. I will understand uh, just a little behind the scenes info for people like, you know, the ultimate decision will be by the Crooked Media Brain Trust. And I, I'm there. If there are some edits uh, from the top, I think that will be understand it, under, understood. Um <laughs> So, but anyway, you guys want to hear about the pod? This yeah, week? who's on this, this week? What, what are you talking about and who's on? Well, I'm real excited about this week's. Uh, it is a very, very awkward couple of conversations in the sense that they're about uncomfortable subjects. Mm-hmm. My One of my guests is a woman who is a comprehensive sex education instructor in mm-hmm. the Chicago area. And she would be interesting to talk to, you know, at any point in time because that's an important subject and a controversial one. Uh, But I am talking to her this week because over the weekend, the Center for Investigative Reporting, in fact, on their Reveal publication, broke the news that HHS cut over $200 million in funding for research into uh, preventing teen pregnancies, which is crazy on many different levels. First of which is that they basically wasted money because what they did was cut funding that the Obama administration had already given for five-year grants um, for to research the scientifically you know validated ways that we can reduce teen pregnancy by cutting the funding halfway through they've made the Im- impossible for researchers to use the data that they've collected to try and do this which is by the way teen pregnancy falling that's great but America still has a higher rate than other industrial nations and also we have pockets of teen pregnancy rates in the country that are really high in the places where you'd expect. That part um, really stuck out at me. Like we have results that show that over however many, last however many years, 10, 20 years, teen pregnancy rates have been falling. You would think Mm -hmm. that that would be enough evidence to say, oh, something's working. These programs are working. And, you know, perhaps we should let them continue their research that they're in the middle of. Right. Or because none of these programs, by the way, had anything to do with abortion. You know, none of these programs like touched the things that we normally associate with, you know, religious um, right outrage. They do, however, cover the fact that you might get pregnant and what you might do to prevent that. Um, They do not they do. They're not abstinence only. Right. Um, But their research, it was research into preventing teen pregnancy and looking at what programs worked the best. And the woman that I talked to, in fact, they did fund some of some of the education because they would see, let's see what education programs work. Right. She was doing um, comprehensive sex education in classrooms that where she was the only person handling that duty. And if now that she's not there, it's going to fall back to P.E. coaches, you know, which I, I don't know about you guys, but <laughs> my, my physical education instructors in middle school were not the best source for information on teen pregnancy prevention, I didn't think. Um, um, I'm pretty sure that holds same. true today. <laughs> well, this is, I mean, this is part of a larger strategy to, you know, this is just like the refusal 
the legal prohibition against doing research into gun violence because Mm -hmm. like the idea is if research happens, then we will be forced to adopt a policy position runs counter to our current beliefs based in ignorance. So we'll just remain ignorant so that there's no danger. We'll be forced to change our position. Right. And it's also like, you know, the other thing that happened this week or that we learned about this week was the scientist, the whistleblower who came out in the Washington Post to say that he had been reassigned from doing climate research to doing like accounts receivable, which is another way of just shutting down the research that makes them feel bad. Right. Just talk talk about snowflakes. Right. (laughs) Like, well, geez, guys, did you guys did you guys also see the uh, Sam Stein story in the uh, Daily Beast today about how Health and Human Services has also been using taxpayer money to basically fund anti Obamacare propaganda? They've been taking like helpful information off the HHS website that help- tells people how they could go enroll and get healthcare coverage, and they've been like filming people doing testimonials saying like why they don't like Obamacare, all with taxpayer money. And this is the Department of Health and Human Services that's supposed to be nonpartisan. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, this is the other. So I actually talked to so I talked to this woman who's a sex education instructor, and then I also talked to Michelle Goldberg uh, for the podcast. Um, we have kind of an extended conversation about something that. I know you guys have covered and I've talked about it a lot, but it's a daily issue, which is like what it's like to have a sexual assailant in, in the White House. Yeah. You know, that that daily insult that we can't, I, I personally can't contemplate for too long because it just, I could, could not work if I actually thought about it at a top level every day. But what we talk about a little bit is, is this gets to this, which is that these are not conservatives, these are nihilists. Right. These are people who do not believe in anything. You know, they want to destroy. They do not want to create even a theocracy, which would be almost understandable. <laughs> you know? Right. They're not even like sort of trying to remake the government in the image uh, that like a Pence government, you know, might be. It's just a government that seems to be about ignorance and destruction and not even a thinking dismantling of what's happening, but just like these bit like this, this defunding of these teenage pregnancy prevention programs. I mean, we are wasting money by doing it, you know? Um, And they don't seem to care. It just was a heart, a heedless, heartless, nonsensical thing to do. Well, and not only did they not care, but they don't really know a lot, which was um, proven by the president himself during that interview so <laughs> you and your segues you're I'm, good i'm really i'm really getting the hang of this guys um so, so well we dan and i talked about this earlier but i wanted to get your take on it is uh trump confusing uh health insurance with life insurance in his uh interview with maggie for the new york times i, I think he did right like yes. that's the only thing that makes it even make a little bit of sense and i know we tweeted about this earlier but like so he said that like he, he said insurance costs 12 dollars a year which is crazy right give me but that deal you, it, but if you think of it as life insurance it makes a little more sense you know like i i said on twitter it brings the the lucille bluth level of ignorance about pricing to just maybe a single Lucille, if we want to judge it in Lucille's, how off are you from the standard price of something? I tweeted that gif last night as soon as I read the <laughs> read the story, which is it's one of my favorite jokes from Arrested Development. If you guys don't know, it's yeah. she she says, "What does a banana cost? Like ten dollars?" Yep. How much could a banana cost? <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, apparent. 
apparently the new season of Arrested Development um, is going to take on the Bush administration or Bush. Uh, they'd already took on the Bush administration. Yeah. With it's a fantastic Iraq war subplots, um, but it's going to take on Trump administration. It's, it's already way, like the most memeable, you know, sitcom or sitcom, but comedy ever. When we someday have, when we someday launch like a culture politics podcast from Crooked Media, like the one show that probably depicts the Trump family better than any any other show is Arrested Development. Like the Bluths, you could make an argument that the Bluths are the Trumps, you know? The Trumps without a Michael. Right, that's right. <laughs> no, so I saw someone on Twitter say this, we're the Michael. <laughs> oh, I see every other I see every other one of them uh but not not them. Right. I mean, I think that makes a lot of makes it make more sense if we assume that he thinks he's talking about life insurance. And he's made this um weird comparison of like the cheap insurance that you somehow benefit from when you're older before. So, I think he doesn't understand what what health insurance is, but of course that just adds us to the long list of things he doesn't understand, right? Like the fact that there were two Napoleons. Um, that's another thing. Do, did you guys just go through the Times interview line by line? Because that, that could close. You, you could have done that for an we hour. We went through a lot of it. We did not get to the Napoleon bit um, or the Macron handshake thing or the like. Uh, <laughs> there's just too much to cover. So, yeah. Well, he gives us something new every day. Um, what do you think? So you guys are the political professionals. Um, I like to turn to you for analysis on, on, on what people in the White House could be thinking uh, what do you think the plan for that interview was there was no plan what do you think no was plan. it was it the made america week was he supposed to be talking about made in america what do you think i think this was trump's idea and he periodically has to talk he has some chemical need to talk to maggie haberman for 45 minutes to an hour periodically and this was it there was no <laughs> thing to do with health care like there i think we always try to ascribe strategy to trump and there is no strategy it's just it's impulse he would feel better mm-hmm. if he was talking himself, so he decided to talk himself. And from what I can tell, the there was no meeting on this. I think Trump told Hope Hicks to schedule it, so they scheduled it. Mm. Yeah, that was both. Is, is Maggie Haberman covered underneath the Senate health care plan? That's, like, that's <laughs> At this point, I mean, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. Okay, well, everyone should download the latest episode of With Friends Like These. Drops tomorrow. I'm interested to hear that conversation about... Uh, the, the awkward conversations about teen pregnancy. And who was the other person you talked to again? Uh, Michelle Goldberg. And Michelle we'll Goldberg. be talking about the, the daily insult uh, to women that is the Trump presidency. Oh, yes. Okay. Well, great. Everyone go, uh, go download that tomorrow. Thank you guys for having me on. And yes, everyone tune in. It's a great conversation. Yes. And, uh, and thanks, everyone, for joining today. And uh, John Lovett's here. We got, he's going to do Love It or Leave It tomorrow night. Yeah. Sarah Silverman? Sarah Silverman's coming to Love It or Leave It. We are getting the guests we we should have. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Um, All right, everyone. Have a good weekend. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. Bye.